Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On today's show, the theatre is taking centre stage. We'll be exploring what's on right now and what it's worth snapping up any remaining tickets for and what to look forward to in the year ahead. What does 2023 look like on the stage? I'm joined in this endeavour by international editor at The Stage, Natasha Tripney, and theatre critic at the International New York Times, Matt Wolfe. We'll be turning the programme spotlight on all manner of thespian delights, including showstopper musicals, a play starring the actor of the moment, and the theatrical reincarnations of best-selling novels by the likes of Olga Tokachuk and Hanya Yanagihara. So order your interval gin and tonics, take your seats and settle in. And welcome both to the programme. Matt Thank and you. Natasha, Thank lovely you. to Thank have you. you here. And Natasha, lovely people might recognise your voice. It's lovely to have you here in person in 2023. How are we feeling generally about the future of theatre this year? Before we get into the depths of it and get some specific predictions, Matt, are you feeling like it's a great year for original stuff, for big names, for film adaptations? What's the general Well, it, it certainly feels that there's a lot. I mean, whatever <laughs> the gaps were, the sort of lulls because of the pandemic, and even, you know, kind of lingering thereafter, that seems to have been put paid to, and certainly by contrast with New York, where I just was over the Christmas holidays, mm-hmm. where things are very much still in abeyance. It feels here as if things are back in full force, which is great. That's great news. Is that how it feels? It feel like a bumper crop for 2023? It does. I think where last year there was a sense of like things slowly starting to find their mm-hmm. feet again. Now we've got a lot of both exciting new projects and adaptations. It's in a good place, I think. Really good place. I like it. Okay, we're going to kick off. We're going to actually kind of go back to the future before we get into onto the hot stuff of 2023. Mm-hmm. We promised in the introduction to give people an idea of what they can snap up any remaining tickets to. Good luck with that in certain respects in the West. And Matt, we're going to with you and you're going to kick us off in terms of what you can see now with Alex Edelman. Well, Alex Edelman is New York based, a Bostonian Jew from an Orthodox family, very important to this narrative. He's a sort of comic monologist. He's an actor who is a solo performer. This is a show that has been seen throughout the East Coast of America. And in fact, it's been seen in London before at the Soho Theatre where I missed it. And I was very glad to see it the other night at the Minier Chocolate Factory. I thought it was absolutely terrific. It feels freeform, but in fact, I think it's quite tightly constructed and scripted and beautifully directed by 
by Adam Brace, and it tells a kind of remarkable story of Alex himself as a Jew in New York going to a gathering of basically Nazi wannabes in the New York City borough of Queens, where, by the way, Donald Trump happens to be from, and what Alex finds when he enters the lion's den, as it were, and how he responds to it and how they respond to him. Amazing stuff. It's a, so this is a one-man mm-hmm. monologue show. Yep. It sounds amazing. It's him with three stools and a kind of bare, rather brutalist backdrop. And uh, it's very, very funny, but some of the comedy is incredibly close to the knuckle. A couple of gasps, genuine gasps, where you think, he made a joke about that. But it really works. And it was funny, but more than that, it was unexpectedly moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was what I didn't expect. I expected to laugh, but I didn't expect to be moved. Um, so that is Alex Edelman just for us. That's on at the Minia Chocolate Factory. A streetcar named Desire. Well, um, this, give up, give up trying to get tickets for this one <laughs> because it's at a small theatre anyway, the Almeida in North London, which seats about 325 or something. But the main attraction is Paul Mescal, who's the Irish heartthrob from Normal People on TV, who now is, is the film It Boy of the moment. He seems to be cast in movies the way we have cups of tea or coffee. And he plays Stanley Kowalski in this production, the part, of course, originated by Marlon Brown. He has been on the London stage before, but never with this degree of visibility. And he's terrific in the production. He's a genuine stage natural. And one just wonders whether he will ever return to the stage once his film career goes into overdrive. But Streetcar is not a solo play. It's not Alex Edelman. Uh, He's got a whole company around him, including a remarkable leading lady, Patsy Ferran, who plays Blanche Dubois the Vivian Lee part on screen, uh, Jessica Tandy on stage, the sort of dethroned Southern Belle, as it were, who's who's sort of uh, clutching at straws to find what remains of her life. And uh, she was a replacement in this production. The original actress dropped out due to injury. And Patsy came in at the very last minute. And the fact that she's done as well as she has, which is formidably well, is doubly remarkable. So good luck, Matt says, we're getting tickets for that. Uh, that is Streetcar. Um, finally, as you like it, which production is that? Yeah, I love this production. There was a lot of Shakespeare during 2022 and lots of very radical productions that like jettison the final act of one player, rewrote the script of another Shakespeare play. This sort of does Shakespeare's play as it is, except that it's cast to be gender fluid, ethnically diverse. You've got a leading lady, Rose Ailing Ellis, who is is deaf. You've got a couple of performers who are partially sighted. So it's incredibly inclusive as a cast, but it's very, very true to the text. Beautifully directed by Josie Wark, beautifully designed by Robert Jones. It's got a lovely original score, and it just reminds you of the enchantment of that play and also the pathos of it as well. I really loved it. Nice. In and Out of the Woods uh, with Matt. So- uh, Wolf there. Thank you very much. That was a little roundup of what we might be able to get tickets for. And Natasha, you're going to kick us off Best of Enemies. Yeah, that's right. Best of Enemies is a play by James Graham. And uh, James Graham is a playwright who has made a career out of like diagnosing like the precise moment in the culture where there were certain cultural shifts. Mm-hmm. And Best of Enemies is a play about public debate, the nature of public debate and how it's changed over the years, how it's evolved. And it focuses on a series of television debates between William Buckley and uh, Gore Vidal, the playwright that took place in the 60s. And it uses the discussions 
between these two men and how they were framed on the media as a kind of a lens to look at how issues are debated in the media these days. And it stars David Harewood uh, as uh, William Buckley and Zachary Quinto, who's starring now in the West End, as uh, Score Vidal. And Zachary Quinto is an actor who, in the UK, I think is probably more familiar from Star Trek and from American Horror Story. But he's a really strong uh, stage actor as well. And he manages to get the cadences of Vidal's speech, his mannerisms, without ever feeling like a kind of like a an impression. It's a really sort of rich performance. And the play itself is really sort of dynamically directed by Jeremy Heron. It's something that could feel static in other hands, but it's got a real dynamism to it. And it's just a very good window into how issues are discussed in the media and how we got to where we are from this point. I would really recommend it. And that's at the Noel Coward Theatre in the West I saw that the other night, and you're right, it's so dynamic, the way they change scenes and the Mm. way they cut from sort of TV staging to theatrical staging and bedrooms and, you know, people's inner lives. I thought it was really wonderful. If anyone cares what I think. We've got the experts here. What a waste. (laughs) Next up, you've chosen Darren Brown. I have. So I am a fan of Darren Brown's uh, stage work and his screen work. And it's I think this is his first live show after four years, obviously, since pre-pandemic. And he's just masterful uh, on stage, the way that he can hold an audience, the way that the shows are constructed. They're very theatrical. It's They have a real sort of visual sort of style as well as um, a sort of performative panache. It's hard to talk about without spoiling it because to give too much away would would ruin it in some ways but like he combines like the history of mesmerism the history of the art of hypnosis is uh, something that's always featured in his shows and it does in this show but there's also quite a surprising amount of emotional nuance in there too Mm -hmm. and his work with an audience the way that he's able to engage with people is one of his strengths as a performer and that's very much on display in this show it's got a real power to it and but it's also it's just a pure entertainment it's someone at the top of his game sort of giving the audience what they want it's at the Apollo Theatre in the West End and I would highly recommend it having seen posters for it around and about the poster for it is a little bit like the Science of the Lambs, which I think is slight, hopefully mis-selling the content of the show. <laughs> it's a bit of a spooky poster, poor yes, Darren. And there's, I mean, spookiness <laughs> is part of his repertoire, yeah. I think. I think it's fair and probably not completely unintentional. But yeah, okay. uh, it's actually, it's got more heart than you might expect from the posters. OK. And your final choice is the London International Mime Festival. I was going to try to adopt the word in the title. <laughs> it wouldn't make a very good, very good radio show. Where are we going with this? I wanted to uh, include this because I think it's one of the most interesting uh, theatre festivals that we have in London. It happens every year in January, which tends to be slightly quieter time in terms of openings after the sort of rush of December. And it's one of the chances that you have to see like some really extraordinary, exciting international physical theatre and circus and anything that doesn't fall into sort of the tr- traditional dramatic category. The word mime in the title, I think, is can be maybe off-putting to some, but it shouldn't be. It's a very broad festival that incorporates all manner of different art forms that tend to be not focused on dialogue, not focused on verbal exchange. And it's a chance to see companies, uh, really exciting European companies like Peeping Tom, who will be here with a, a new production called Triptych that's going to be at the Barbican. Uh, you can see Dance Duo Thick and Tight, who are always really fascinating to watch. Um, sort of old hand companies like uh, Told by an Idiot, a, a play called Charlie and Stan, which is about Charlie Chaplin and uh, Stan uh, Laurel. And uh, that's going to be at Wilton's Music Hall. And there's just a really 
wide range of puppetry, of circus, of juggling. Gandini jugglers are doing their new show as well. And if you're interested in work that's a little bit more left field, the London International Mime Festival has for years been the best sort of opportunity to see that in London. I love that. That's the London Mime Festival. And that's on when? It starts on the 16th of January and it runs into early February. Okay, perfect. Out now, we can say. Okay, so that was uh, what's happening right now on the London stage, for which you might still be able to get some tickets. Thank you very much, um, Matt and Natasha. Matt, we're going to cross over to you for what's happening, what's coming up this year in 2023. Uh, Your first choice, uh, going back to the future. Gaz and Dolls, the musical at the Bridge Theatre opening March 9th. This is, well, you know, a lot of people consider it the greatest Broadway musical ever written. I'm not quite sure I'd say that, but it's certainly in the top five. But I don't know, my favourite changes from week to week. It's a show that seems to have a particular affection in British uh, hearts. It was the first ever musical done at the National Theatre back in the early 80s. And it seems, in the many years I've lived in London, it seems to be constantly being revived. But this revival promises something a little bit more special. First of all, it's the first musical done at the Bridge, which is a newish theatre uh, just along the river from the National. It's directed by Nicholas Heitner, who used to run the National, who's no slouch when it comes to musicals or, in fact, anything. And it's being done immersively. Now, this is very unusual for Guys and Dolls. I've never seen an immersive production of Guys and Dolls or, in fact, of many of, I think, of any musical. And uh, Heitner has done immersive productions of Shakespeare, where you kind of wander around through the action and Midsummer Night's Dream people are hanging above you and bouncing on beds next to you. But it's a little different with Midsummer Night's Dream or Julius Caesar and the world of Damon Runyon in 1950s New York in Guys and Dolls. So how that will work, I don't know. But I assume it means that the audience will be up close and personal with the action and the actors. And that will probably give it even more to use Natasha's word, even more dynamism and immediacy and connect you even more directly with this wonderful score. It's got such a great score and such fantastic characters, Mm. you know, Nicely Nicely Johnson and Miss Adelaide and Sky Masterson and Nathan Detroit. They, They all feel like, you know, familiar, beloved people. Yeah, I mean, and also such good names. These are so deep in the culture now, you kind of forget that they were all characters in the same musical as well, right? Yes, and what's always interesting, particularly about the British productions of these musicals, is that they tend to slightly cast out of left field. So whereas in New York there might be a short list of musical theatre regulars that get tapped for all of these shows, here it's very often somebody you wouldn't expect. So Nathan Detroit in this iteration is being played by Daniel Mays, who's a wonderful uh, theatre and television actor who I don't recall ever seeing in a musical. Musical. So what that would be like, I don't know. Marisha Wallace is being uh, Marisha Wallace, who's uh, an American actress now based uh, in the UK, is playing Miss Adelaide. That's kind of a brilliant, unexpected choice. The Sky Masterson is a performer called Andrew Richardson, who I've never even heard of. So that's kind of interesting. Well known, not at all known, mm. all brought together. That is Guys and Dolls, and that's going to be at the Bridge Theatre from uh, the beginning of February. I love that, and I'm definitely going to go to see that. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. Natasha, we hit the tennis ball over to your side of the court, and you've chosen Operation Mincemeat. Operation Mincemeat is another musical. This is a new British musical based on a absolutely fascinating true story that took place during the Second World War, a true tale of British espionage with a complicated moral quality to it. So uh, during the Second World War, in order to sort of convince the Nazis that the invasion of Sicily was going to take place when, in fact, it was going to be elsewhere, dead body was used as a feint to give 
give falsified documents to the enemy. These documents were planted on this body, which was floated ashore in Spain, dressed as an airman. And this very fascinating and slightly murky story is used as the basis for a musical by a young British company called Spitlip. It's their first attempt to make a musical. They have uh, past made comedy theatre before in different guises, but this is their first musical. And they tell this story with wit and with a surprising amount of emotional depth as well. It's got a sort of some of the songs are pastiche-like, some of them are much more heartfelt. It really sort of shifts musical genres from song to song. It's incredibly funny, but also really interesting on how we tell stories, the way we tell stories, who gets to tell the stories. It's a very artful critique of how the powerful get to sculpt their own narratives. And it's also a really interesting example of a fringe production, a small show that went from uh, very humble beginnings in the small New Diorama Theatre in 2019 when they first made the show and it was very popular there and then after the pandemic it came back for I think three different runs in sort of venues of increasing size it started to get a real kind of cult following it's got fans who go back and see it multiple times and and now it's coming to the West End it's going to go to the Fortune Theatre which was the home of the Woman in Black for many many years and is now going to be the home of Operation Mincemeat when it opens in the West End I think it begins previews in March and then opens a little later and it's as a homegrown musical theatre cult in the making. It's a really exciting show. What's interesting about that is with all these really long-running shows, there's always the question of what will unseat them. Mm -hmm. So The Woman in Black, as you say, which has been around since God was a boy, you kind of think that these are just going to be, they'll outlive us all. And this is the show, which is wonderful. I saw it at Southern Playhouse and loved it. And musically, what world are we in? Are we in the world of the 1940s or are we all over the place? We are all over the place and I think yeah. that's one of the joys in it. From song to song, they're playing around with forms. So they have, there's Beyonce in there. They have probably the best dancing Nazis since uh, the producers. <laughs> they, uh, absolutely. Uh, Put that on the poster. Don't tell Alex Edelman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then just as it's, you know, you're having fun, you're having a very good time, it kind of hits you with this incredibly, like, beautifully written, not quite a ballad, but a a really gentle song that has half the audience sobbing by the end. And it comes slightly out of nowhere. And and the register, the emotional register shifts completely. And it it takes real skill to be able to do that, to have yourself crying with laughter in one song and then genuinely properly crying in the next song. And Operation Minspeed does that. That's a ringing endorsement of Operation Mincemeat. Me. Um, Natasha, thank you so much. And that we definitely need to get that put on the poster for this uh, production of Operation Mincemeat at the Fortune Theatre. Matt, we're back um, to you with Dancing at Lugnassa. Yes, this is uh, one of my Desert Island plays. This mm. is an Irish play by Brian Friel, legendary Irish dramatist who died a couple of years ago, age 86. And having been around a while as I have, I saw the original production of this uh, several times in different cities, Dublin and London and then Broadway, where it won the Tony Award. And it was a transformative experience for me. And uh, it's having a major revival at the National uh, opening on April 18th in the Olivier Auditorium, uh, directed by Josie Rourke, the same woman who, in fact, directed As You Like It. It's a beautiful play rooted absolutely in Brian Friel's own experience about five sisters, the Mundy sisters, living in County Donegal which is Friel's normal territory in 1936, and it's cast as a memory play. And I think what is probably increasingly interesting about it now, compared possibly to when it premiered, is that it's even rarer now to find plays that luxuriate in language, but this play really does, and uh, the language is just ravishing. And talk about emotional shifts, it's 
very, very moving, or at least it should be if done well, but also fantastically funny and robust. It's got a great scene, too, which has always been kind of a treasured moment in contemporary theater, where the five sisters spontaneously in the kitchen break into a kind of ecstatic dance, a kind of Dionysiac revel. And it's a thrilling moment if done well. So Siobhan McSweeney from Dairy Girls is in this production, Justine Mitchell, Arlo O'Hanlon. So I'm really looking forward to it. And you said that it was a transformative experience for you to see it in three different locations as well. What's the sort of emotional heart of of the play for you? I think a sense of, it's kind of that Tennessee Williams thing of using theatre to come to terms with your past and to face up to a reckoning with how you got here from there. And it just felt ripped from somewhere very, very, very personal. And uh, it's tender, but it isn't, it's not vaporous. It's got a real spine to it. And I think it will hold the Olivier stage as a different Friel play, Translations, did beautifully a couple of years ago. So it's following on from another Friel play in the same auditorium. Beautiful. Thank you, Matt. Natasha, back to you. And this is from an adaptation of the novel by Olga Tokarczuk, Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead. What a brilliant title for anything. It is an extraordinary, it's a fantastic title, isn't it? This is a novel by the Polish author Olga Tokarczuk, who won the Nobel Prize and is a really big literary figure in her native Poland. This book is... Quite a provocative and controversial book in Poland. It's not liked by the right, I think that's fair to say, and has has, has led to um, a number of sort of protests exactly, but it's, it's definitely a, a, a book that is divisive. And it's being brought to the stage by Complicite, which is one of the sort of arguably the world's best sort of physical theatre companies. They have made extraordinary shows, like uh, I think the, the Encounter is one of the most recent and most fascinating shows, but their work is it's ambitious it's experimental, it's total theatre and they are approaching this book, this fascinating book in a production directed by Simon McBurney who's the co-founder of uh, Complicite and who's a fascinating sort of actor and theatre maker and he's working in collaboration with Catherine Hunter the extraordinary Catherine Hunter who many people would have seen in Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth where she played all three witches and also uh, many stage productions. She was recently in Lear at the Globe and is playing the the main character, the protagonist of this novel, who is a woman in her, I'd say, 60s. She's reclusive, she's isolated and sort of ignored by society. She's invisible, but she also has this real affinity with nature and the world, the natural world. And when a series of deaths start happening around her, this kind of darkly comic story starts unfolding and it'll be absolutely fascinating to see how Simon McBurney and this company who've worked together many times over the years bring out the the strangeness and the sort of the incredibly sort of rich imagery of yeah it's this amazing novel. it's sort of quite it's magical it's mystical yes, it's yes. quite brutal and it's funny it's there's a lot going on for complicité to get their teeth into Absolutely. Uh, it's also a production, I think, for the company, from their perspective, it will have some emotional resonance mm. because it was also supposed to star Marcello Magni, who was the co-founder of Complicity, and uh, Catherine Hunter's husband, and he passed away last year. So they're going ahead with the production. But I think that his sort of presence as a, as a performer, as an artist, will be still be there and within sort of the shape of this show. And uh, it's that they are a total theatre company. They, yeah. they uh, make these sort of magical, mesmeric pieces of theatre. So I think the matching of the company and the material will be fascinating to see. I think we're going to hear a lot about that uh, that production. That is Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead. Thank you, Natasha. Matt, your final choice. Well, Boo-hoo. Uh, another literary <laughs> adaptation from a 
controversial source, although I don't think one that prompted any protest, but I may be wrong. Uh, this is A Little Life, which is based on the novel by Hanya Yanagihara and a novel that I think ran 700 plus pages. I confess not to having read the entire novel, but I've got it on the shelf. I will read it before this opens, uh, which is March 30th at the Harold Pinter Theater. <laughs> we're not We're not going to... We, it's not going to come around and test. Matt. Uh, I, I know. I'll, you, you'll be Where's there. Where's your going, bookmark? Matt, Matt, you know, where have you got to? Come on, hurry up, hurry up. What's interesting about this adaptation is directed by the Belgian theater auteur, Eva van Hove, and he has done the, uh, he's done this already with his sort of resident company on the continent at the Edinburgh Festival, off-Broadway at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, but he's never done it in English before. So this will be a totally separate English language uh, premiere starring another kind of Paul Mescal adjacent television and film heartthrob James Norton and Luke Thompson, Zach White, Amory Douglas. And what's interesting is will he be able to contrive from a brand new cast that sense of solidarity that his work uh, with his sort of root company, as it were, has generated across time, where they just bring so much to the table, a little bit like Complicity, by dint of having worked together all these years, and here he's got to create all that from scratch. And do justice to a complicated, sometimes very off-putting narrative. The production previously ran four-plus hours. When it was on in New York, it, there were lots of walkouts. The response was very polarized. So it should make for quite a sort of interesting and unusual evening on the West End. Yeah. The fact that this is commercial, too. This is a commercial venture. This isn't tucked away at the Almeida. This is right in the heart of the mainstream. So that's interesting as well. Yeah, this will be, be interesting to see the, the fallout or otherwise of this. Can you give our listeners a sense of, you, you mentioned Ivo Venhove, the, the sort of auteur director yeah. with his own company. What's his sort of house style? If, if um, sort of deconstructionist, I guess you would say. Uh-huh. He very often incorporates video design. He likes to break the fourth wall. He sometimes likes to open the back wall of the theater. <laughs> he did what sound. I never got to see it because, unfortunately, it was put, paid to by the pandemic and then it never reopened. He did a, a really wild-sounding Broadway revival of West Side Story, and it was absolutely polarizing, as his stuff often is. So he likes to subvert expectation. He likes to sort of push things to the limit. He likes to sort of... Some actors claim that he kind of treats them as as marionettes, that he keeps them on a very tight lead. But it, it all results in a very particular rigorous aesthetic. So it'll be interesting to see how James Norton adapts to that. That is a little life based on a big book. That's uh, <laughs> Matt Wolf. That's so brilliant. Thank you for letting us in on that as well. It's um, really good stuff. And Natasha's final choice is Milo Rao's Antigone in the Amazon. That's right. I've picked something that's uh, not opening in uh, the UK, but I think is going to be one of the theatre talking points of uh, the summer. Milo Rao is a really... Um like an incredibly interesting theatre maker and artist. He um, is the artistic director of uh, National Theatre of Ghent in Belgium. He is, I think, quite well known in theatre circles because he has a manifesto in terms of how he makes work, how he creates work. He has very strict rules about how he operates. He will not have, uh, you know, there's only a certain number of adaptations of work he'll do in any particular season. He's very keen of working with non-professional actors in various different contexts. He believes that you should make at least, you know, one production a year in a war zone he has like quite like some of these ideas are provocative some of these are more practical but he has this very distinctive so he's come to London <laughs> yeah. he will have work in London with yeah. one of his older shows is coming to the Battersea Arts Centre in April and that's called Hate Radio and that was a really interesting show Good but title. that's 
That's an excellent title <laughs> and a really, really interesting show from a few years back. But uh-huh. his latest uh, show will be opening at his home theatre in Ghent and it's likely to do the international festival circuit after that. So we, we, we'll probably get it at some point in some form. Uh, but it's part of a trilogy of work that he's made at the theatre, which are all based on ancient myths. One of these was about sort of the refugee crisis in Europe. One of these was Orestes in Mosul, which they actually went and did some filming in what was then Islamic State. So they're very keen on going to places, taking theatre artists and meeting with local theatre artists in different cultures and different countries and working in a collaborative way. And in this case, they have gone to uh, Brazil. So they are working with indigenous activists and artists in Brazil. This is a project they started making in 2020. They were actually in Brazil in March 2020 and got stuck. They were in quarantine before they were able to return to Belgium. And now this is three years later, is coming to fruition. And we're actually going to see the show that they've been making and constructing over this time, putting the Antigone story in the context of the destruction of the Brazilian rainforests, working with, I said, activists and artists there, as well as their own actors from Belgium and working in a collaborative way to tell that story, I would imagine, with a mixture of filmed material and live stage material, which often interact, and that's how they've worked in this in this trilogy in the past. And he's just one of the most interesting theatre artists working today and I think this is this show is going to have a lot of interest and is going to really tap into a lot of questions that we're asking about climate catastrophe, about populism. It was obviously, they started making it when Bolsonaro was still in um, uh, power and I think that was very much addressing the political climate in Brazil at the time. It should be fascinating. Wow, that's what a lot of issues and interest there is. That's Milo Rao's Antigone in the Amazon. And that's about mourning, isn't it? And about the right to mourn and things like that. I mean, I, ha- I have to confess, I did have to Google it. My so- I was a bit rusty on my Sophocles. <laughs> but that's the, roughly what it's about. That's correct. It, it's about the right to mourn, the, the rituals of burying the dead and to honour your culture and your tradition and your family. And it's a play that feels very much a play for these times as well. There have been multiple productions of Antigone, including a number in the UK. There was uh, NYLM's did an Antigone uh, last September in the open air theatre. There have been numerous recent uh, stagings of this play. So it's clearly something that in the sort of collective imagination it is a play that has a lot of resonance. So that's Miller's Antigone in the Amazon. Natasha also chose Drive Your Plough of the Bones of the Dead and Operation Mincemeat. Matt, meanwhile, chose Guys and Dolls, Dancing at Lugnasa and A Little Life. Thank you both very much Thank indeed. You. Great to Thank have you. your wit and wisdom and such deep learning on the programme. It's great stuff. Um, you are listening to Natasha Tripney and Matt Wolf. Thank you both. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. 